suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother JS to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope entertaining stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today in our episode 130, Part 9 of The Man Whom Women Loved. The story of the wildlife and times of Peter Beard, the world-famous fashion and wildlife photographer whose infinite attraction to women was matched by only two things. Number one, their attraction to him. And number two, Beard's sociopathic levels of narcissism. Beard believed and lived his life in the wild and led a wild life of drinking, women, drugs. That was his reality. And when he wasn't seducing women, he was obsessed with his diaries. And a diarist has to be at least, at minimum, a narcissist to think that his description of the mundanities of his own life might be of interest to later generations. But Beard was. Fortunately, did... um, Beard did spruce up his diaries with script, sketches, paintings, quill pen drawings, marginalia, fauna, thousands of photographs, small poems, facts, figures, feathers, twigs, pieces of grass, cigarette butts, newspapers, newspaper headlines, and all sorts of other miscellaneous paraphernalia and erotica. Beard had made his name by turning his photographic montages into one-of-a-kind sui generis works of art. Some sold for, if you can believe this, $500,000 or more. And a fair number of his creation um, creations featured blood spatters, his own and animal blood, and ink jottings along with personal mementos. Beard often hired local African artists to add to his photo montages, to bring it color and detail, an artistic flavor to his works, which proved quite distinctive in their original design. There's no doubt about it. Upon sight, the artistic world, despite uncertainty, as to whether photo montage was actually an art form or not, they could not look at a piece and say definitively upon sight that it's not a Peter Beard. In the same way they could say, that's a Picasso, that's a Van Gogh, that's a Monet, that's a Gauguin. So distinctive were Peter Beard's works. There's no doubt about it. Which pretty much makes the case that Beard's pieces indeed satisfied the argument, is this art or not? Yeah, it was. Unfortunately, um, in all of this, Peter Beard thought it acceptable that he pay his contributing local African artist $20 to $50 to add scrawl, local paint touches, or otherwise add graffiti-like 
accents to his photo montages, essentially paying less than minimum wage for their effort to make beards work so idiosyncratic in nature, sufficient enough that he could later, upon their completion, sell these pieces for thousands, even tens of thousands of dollars or more in Manhattan. These one-of-a-kind Peter Beard works of art. And Beard was never interested in sharing the wealth. This is this is both a shameful practice and it's really counterproductive, a counterproductive strategy. Running a business in the U.S., even at a young age, demonstrated to me time and time again that the best way to get richer was to share the wealth with others whom are helping you get rich in the process. I found it inarguably true for three decades. You value people, compliment them on their great work, allow them to share in the rewards of such excellent work product, and they, as the Hollies and Graham Nash once sung, they will pay you back with interest. You get the best from people by treating them well, not poorly. Sharing the wealth, rewarding people richly for their efforts is likely the very way, the very method by which one's own reward and riches will increase. But Peter Beard did not believe this. Disturbingly, but I guess characteristic of all narcissists, other people simply don't matter. They don't even enter into the equation. The thought of sharing the wealth with local African artists probably never, ever entered Peter Beard's mind. For, for, for all Beard's stated and alleged concerns about the poor plight of Africans in general, it wasn't a problem that he set out to rectify, even where in his world he might do his small bit. He couldn't be troubled to even consider sharing his wealth with those, those artists who contributed to making those one-of-a-kind Peter Beard masterpieces potentially so valuable. Beard filled hundreds of volumes. He was a committed, obsessed diarist whose works, if nothing else, they, they are interesting to look at. And at one point in his life, Beard had decided to tour southern France to take the Van Gogh tour in Arles. He, and he came away from that tour reinforced in his belief that real art, the kind that Van Gogh produced, was only created or produced amongst and in the midst of absolute turmoil from, from chaos and unruly wild behavior. Stressed out, you know, intense, stormy behavior of the mind and heart. That was the trick. That was the formula for art. And Beard would live life as crazed as had Van Gogh. Now, Beard wouldn't cut off his own ear, but he would make himself bleed for his art. This was never in doubt. And as to his work's potential value as art or scholarship, that, that does remain an open question, with scholars haven't, haven't yet become of one mind as to whether a Beard 
though they agree it's a beard when you look at it, truly should be classified as a form of true art. And as a, as a rich young man, Beard was at first intrigued by, and of this there's no doubt, he'd fallen in love with Africa. He really fell for the place. And he soon pronounced that Africa was dying. Now, this would not be unusual for Beard um, to make such a proclamation that Africa is dying because he was personally obsessed with the whole idea of death. It's not that Beard was um, suffering from uh, thanatophobia, uh, the fear of death or, or the process of dying. He, he was seemingly drawn toward the process of desiccation, decay, and dying. Entropy in short whether it be species of animal, a way of life, the land, the trees, civilizations, customs, everything was always dying in the eyes of Peter Beard. I mean, he criticized environmental experts, um, Western NGOs, wildlife con uh, cons conservationists, and he decried the life's work of the well-respected, renowned Richard Leakey and his efforts to eradicate poachers and keep African wildlife and its history alive. And, and, and who was this Peter Beard anyway to criticize the efforts of a Richard Leakey? Well, what, expert, what expertise did he have in the field? Well, none, none actually. He'd been an art major at Yale, but he was Peter Beard. And that was and should be enough to be taken seriously. His ideas accepted as pure gospel. That's the way it should go. You know, um, the British member of parliament, the famous Lord Acton, believed that the same moral and legal standards should be applied to all men, political and religious leaders included. Essentially, the law applies equally to all men which led Acton in the 19th century to pronounce so famously that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what if, what if you believe you are the law? What if you believe you're above the law? What if you believe that you are the arbiter of right and wrong? Well, then what? You do whatever you please, don't you? Doesn't this just follow? Need some evidence of what this might mean? Try this out as respects our protagonist, Peter Beard. Peter, Peter Beard developed a disconcerting habit of tracking wild animals on foot, violating Kenyan law, operating as if he were some white buana big game hunter from a century past. In his wandering, his walkabouts, he often got lost while doing so. And then what happens? Well, this required, you know, the incensed, under-budgeted, overtaxed, overworked, outgunned game park wardens divert staff from their true objective, which was to protect the African herds of wild animals from decimation by illegal poachers via their um, their anti-poaching patrols, and instead they were now forced to go wandering to find the, the great white 
Buana, who was lost again somewhere in Savo East. You know, as mentioned earlier, this was a game reserve two times the size, twice the size of Yellowstone Park. I mean, Beard was so irresponsible. It was morally indefensible behavior. Just so selfish. But that that encapsulated the moral code of Peter Beard. What I want to do, I am going to do. If I get in trouble, well, it's your duty to help me out. That's just the way it is. Look, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a busy, important, rich, trust fund beneficiary by the name of Peter Beard. I am now going to um, uh, get lost or I might get drunk. I'm now going to smoke a little weed, snort, snort a little cocaine. And then after that, even though I have um, dirty feet, dirt encrusted under my fingernails, and, and I dress like a homeless man, I am going to go back to my tent where I will have sex with, um, I don't know, Candace Bergen, Jackie O's sister, Cheryl Teagues, and other beautiful women whom anxiously await my servicing. So why don't you guys get back in your Range Rovers and do a better job of saving Africa's endangered wildlife from destruction. Quiery, ciao, adios, goodbye. This was how Peter Beard behaved. And, and speaking of those anti-poaching efforts, you know, Beard was critical of, of the conservationist leadership and their efforts, claiming they were ineffective and counterproductive. And while Beard may have had a valid argument or two, uh, some validity to his arguments, he did himself and the cause no favors when he found on that 45-acre hog farm ranch of his located in the Engong Hills adjacent to Isaac Dennison's old farm, a poacher. He found a poacher roaming about his property. Now, you or I might have called the local authorities, the police, to deal with this troubling situation, game park officials. But, but we are Peter Beard. He would not be restricted by either custom or law. And this is where, this is where Lord Acton's dictum really comes into play. Um, or as with the case with Peter Beard, it didn't. Because no, no, Peter Beard did not believe that it was necessary to inform authorities of the presence of a poacher in the area. He knew how to take care of this situation. The rules don't apply to Peter Beard. They didn't apply to Peter Beard. What happened next after the poacher's capture is not precisely clear. The, de the detainment of that poacher um, part, that part is not disputed by anybody. Beard never argued that he didn't detain the man. That was beyond doubt, beyond confusion. But what also was not disputed is that there is law in Kenya. This was not the Congo or Somalia where there exist no laws, nothing but chaos and men with different caliber weapons. No, this was Kenya. The Kenyan law is clear. It is a crime. It is against the law to illegally confine and assault a poacher. That is the law of Kenya. And this is to prevent a descent in Kenya to scenes that took place in America's Wild West in the 1800s. 
Vigilantism is not adjudicated as a good thing in the country of Kenya, especially in a nation that had recently experienced its first days of independence post-colonial rule. And it did not seem to be a good thing uh, to have citizens enforcing the law. Judge, jury, as is Peter Beard. It didn't need vigilantism, Kenya, and street justice. No way. Criminal sentencing guidelines for those convicted of illegally detaining a poacher subjects the transgressor to 18 months in prison and, listen to this, 12 strokes with a hippo hide whip. Now we're talking. Both, both aspects of this criminal sentencing seem to indicate to me that the Kenyans took illegal detainment of a poacher. They took it as a matter best left to the administration by the appropriate Kenyan authorities empowered to manage the poaching crisis. The Kenyan government appears to have taken this poacher business quite seriously in my opinion. 18 months in a Kenyan prison wouldn't be, believe me, um, a country club bit as is served by white-collar criminals in the USA. And, and the rather distinctive addition of hippo-hide whipping, that part of the sentence certainly would get my attention for sure. You know, that part had to be designed to punish, hurt, and, and embarrass. It's not unlike the punishments meted out in Singapore for things like spitting on the sidewalk, chewing gum, keying cars, or tagging property, graffiti, all of which, you know, by the way, I totally agree with. Kenya, to its credit, unlike, say, the Taliban in Afghanistan, do not believe in whipping, beheading, or shooting women at halftime of, of football games. And unlike Iran, do not publicly hang um, from cranes arrestees within 23 days of arrest. What Beard did do to that poacher is still somewhat unclear. Rumor, rumor has it that, that he had the poacher hanged by the thumbs. That, you know, that, that's got to hurt. Others argue he had the poacher tied to, a, to separate trees, crucifixion style, for a while. What constitutes for a while, even today, all these years later, is still not clear. What happened was Beard was arrested for his detainment of the poacher and sent to prison. For how long, no one seems to know that part either. It wasn't 18 months, that's for sure, or anything resembling 18 months, that's for sure. But Beard refused to divulge just how long he'd been in prison. He wouldn't divulge it to anybody. He wouldn't disclose it. And Kenyan authorities weren't talking either. But wouldn't you know it? It was reported, and there are claims, unsubstantiated but reported, that the Kennedy family, yes, the U.S. Kennedy family, oh, those rascals, they, they used their extensive influence to get Peter Beard released from that Kenyan prison before Beard was subjected to that hippo-hide whipping, which he no doubt deserved, and for whom it, it, it might have done him some good. And, and I'm thinking it was going to be administered by what I would have thought post-colonial rule, would have been a very enthusiastic member of the prison staff who, in the chilling words 
of my late newspaper uh, reporter friend Steve Pleza would have reveled in that moment and in demonstrating to Peter Beard just who had the meat now. That definitely would have left a mark, made quite an impression on the white buana Peter Beard. Now, would the Kennedy family have come to Peter Beard's aid? Well, it's, it's not 100% clear. It's not 100% certain that they did. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Sure, things you know might have looked confusing, but the morals of the Kennedys tend to be of a relativistic, you know, liquid, not solid, even vaporous state. It sort of depends on what the definition of is is, if one subscribes to the liberal Clintonian definition of is as having no, no fixed meaning. Hard to, hard to know. And then, and then there's the, the confusing interconnectedness of the extended Kennedy family proclivities issues, which are relevant here and which we'll touch upon briefly in our next episode, where we will attempt to bring this extended discussion of the life and doings of Peter Beard at last to a conclusion, but not before mentioning as you might have noted, a number of other subjects that will crop up when we return in our next episode, part 10 of The Man Whom Women Loved. And I thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying the life and times, the wild times of Peter Beard. And we will close out in our next episode. Hope you have a good day. Goodbye. Inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I belong Everything I'm also Just a drop of rain and a thunderstorm Another grain of sand on the beach A blade How could I miss what was in front of me? Two eyes that can't make you see. It's the mind that paints all these pictures, like the mirage of the desert. Sea. I misread all the signals. I never knew that I.